Welcome to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast with homilies, talks, reflections, lectures, and other snippets of life from the Diddy Catholic Campus Center. Find out more at diddycenter.org. Welcome back to Emporia State Catholics. This is Father Matt, and I'm with Patrick Callahan. And we are talking about G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, Chapter 5, The Flag of the World. Yeah, or flags of the world, right? The (laughs) optimist versus the pessimist. The optimist versus the pessimist, that's right. So he begins this chapter by talking about uh, different definitions of optimism and pessimism, and and that is really the, the prism through which this whole chapter develops is this um, the optimist and the pessimist. And yet at the same time, the chapter also begins with, a, again, a, a logical um, sort of beginning of what is an optimist and what is a pessimist. And he discusses his, his problem of encountering what are these two things. He starts by saying, when I was a boy, there were two curious men running about who, call, who were called the optimist and the pessimist. I constantly use the words myself, but I cheerly, cheerfully confess that I had never had any very special idea of what they meant. Right. So what, the, what is a good way of, of summarizing what are the, the two definitions that he does come up with here? Well, uh, you know, I, I should say this at the beginning. He, he talks about, um, he's talks about uh, he says, it would be unfair to omit altogether from the list the mysterious but suggestive definition said to have been given by a little girl. Uh, an optimist is a man who looks after your eyes, and a pessimist is a man who looks after your feet. So I think that's hilarious uh, that he adds that suggestive, uh, said to have been given by a little girl. But he, he says, he, he ultimately dismisses this definition, right? He says there might be some allegorical truth to it, but um, he sees the, uh, I mean, ultimately I think he would see the optimist in the very best sense of the word as one who loves um, the world enough to defend what's very best in it. And the pessimist, the very best of the pessimists, is one who loves the world enough to criticize it. And you can see that there isn't a dichotomy there, that there seems to be, you would seem to need a little bit of both. And that really is a riddle Chesterton is wrestling with in this chapter. I don't know, what's your take on it, Patrick? Well, you know, I get the, I get the joke, you know, like the little girl, right? optimist she mistakes it for optometrist yes but at the the same time yeah and the optimist is looking forward right seeing what's not there uh directly in front of you and then uh the pessimist right uh podiatrist Podiatrist, right yeah Yeah, looking after the pespedes right the latin for foot um is looking at you know what's beneath you kind of reminds me of um the academy by Raphael, where plato is pointing up and aristotle is uh, got his hand out saying, hey, we got to pay attention to things on the earth too. Um, yeah, it. I get it. I, I think it's something I wrestled with too as a young man. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons that it, the chapter was appealing to me when I first read it when I was in college. Um, because I did, you know, every everything that I had gone to in public school uh, really had kind of said, you know, it could be one of these two things. We're not going to make the decision for you. Um, but all these philosophies and all these philosophers, which is not true, by the way, as I later on, you know, actually read these philosophers and find that it's more nuanced than what I was told. But in public school, you know, like, you know, Rousseau, Locke, Hobbes, 
all these things are kind of like, you know, man is ultimately good or man is ultimately bad or situations ultimately good or ultimately bad. It's society's fault. It's the individual's fault. Um, everyone wants to put it in this binary system. What I find more interesting in the chapter is Chesterton saying it's not a binary system. Um, it's a paradoxical system or, or something else. That, and we can get into that. Um, so I think, I don't know, is that, is that an adequate answer? I, I think it is. I mean, Chesterton is really, what he's walking us through here is he's wrestling with this riddle. Kind of like, like you were saying, that it's not an either-or situation. And, and um, you know, this is a little bit later on in the chapter, but I loved it. He talked about how a woman is with her husband, how a woman will be his most vigorous defender in public. Um, you know, you, it, from that standpoint, she could be seen as the epitome of an optimist towards her husband. Yet yeah. in private, she is the most keenly aware of his faults and the most willing to criticize him. Why? Because she loves him and wants what's best for him. Right. And I think that even you use the word criticism, and I think that's the one that Chesterton latches on to both criticism and approval as incorrect terms for mm -hmm. what we're trying to, to do. I mean, yeah. what I'll say here, I really like this part. Um, he says, you know, we owe loyalty more than criticism or approval of the world. Yeah. Right? That we're, we're born into this world. And so we owe it a certain loyalty and loyalty is different than criticism or approval um, and he almost, you know, I think he almost takes that idea of loyalty. You know, he says, um, he says it's a deep mistake uh, in this alternative of the optimist and the pessimist because the assumption of it is that a man criticizes the world as if he were house hunting, as if he were being shown a new suite of apartments. But the truth is, uh, before a man is capable of doing that, he's already lived in the world. And already has yeah. this loyalty to the world, so he he can't be this like this objective house hunter looking in an apartment for the full time with his full powers. Well, it's kind of like a family in some yeah. ways, um, and it's even more extreme than the family because with the family you can at, at some point, you know, if your family is, is some sort of awful situation, you can eventually grow up, move away from it, um, start your own family you can't grow up from this world and found a new world. Um, you know, perhaps nations and countries, you can emigrate, but the, the world itself, you are owed a, you owe a certain loyalty to, you are not going to be born into a whole other world. It just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I think even family, you know, to a point, yes, you can, um, move and, and you can, you know, acquire a spouse and have your own children. But even even then, family has sort of that loyalty aspect, right? As someone who grew up in, in southern New Jersey, that sort of uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia, New York culture of the Irish and the Italians where, you know, like you can say all sorts of nasty things about your own family. But if anyone else says something about your family, there's going to be serious consequences. They're going to be sleeping with the fishes. Well, we're going to ask you to step out of the room, oh, okay. right? Yeah. Are you are you saying you were in a mafia family? Were you a mafia kid? Well, I'm Irish, so this is not okay. yeah, it's a non-starter. It's a non-starter. Can't be a made man. Yeah, the New Jersey jokes never really do get old. Um, any, so he he lights on this sort of with this idea of Pimlico, which uh, sorry, can you refresh us on like what is Pimlico and why do we even care about it? Right, Pimlico is, as far as I can tell, uh, it's it's a a neighborhood in central London. 
Right. Um, and so, I mean, he uses Pimlico. He could be using Emporia or a part of Emporia or Overland Park or any Yeah, place. well, Pimlico wouldn't be Overland Park. It would be like, I don't know. So, again, like you, you pick whatever whatever part of the city that you don't like. Well, sure, sure. Uh, and everyone has their favorite wow. likes and dislikes of areas of, of a city. There are, there are a lot of people who... Right. If, I, if I'm if I'm from New York, right, if right. I'm from the greater New York area, right, and you talk about different, you know, Upper West Side, Upper East Side, right, uh, Meat Packers District, all that, you you know, you, whatever whatever it is. If I mean, if you want to talk about a part of the world that people generally don't like, I think St. Louis is a good place to start. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but it but it is it's a pe- place that, that right people don't generally like. But his point is is that if men loved Pimlico, as mothers love children, he writes, uh, and he says mothers love children arbitrarily because they're her children, right? If men love Pimlico that way, in a year or two, Pimlico might be fairer than Florence. And he goes on to say, some readers will say that this is a mere fantasy. I answer that this is the actual history of mankind. Uh, And he gives the example that men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because men loved her because they loved Rome. They cared about it enough to make her great, to make her a great city. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's a whole other thing growing up in, you know, sort of the, the bad suburbs outside of, uh, Philadelphia, Camden, right. Which is very impoverished area. Um, you can kind of tell there were different variations on that, right. There were, there were blocks and, uh, tenement houses where people loved it and made it great and there were other blocks you know as i was growing up as a young boy where you didn't walk there because people didn't love it and it wasn't great and you know you know where i think we see this and and this is in general not not always true but i think you see this in catholic churches you know the suburban churches um kind of pop up and those aren't the ones that are super memorable super beautiful no yeah where do you see the beautiful churches in these small towns where german and irish and yeah, and whatever and in, immigrant and in the city too, and in the city too, right? Where this, what they poured their blood, sweat, and tears into their parish, and they built these gorgeous, gorgeous churches. Right. Yeah, I used to take students out to Colorado, and we'd stop in um, Victoria, Kansas, where right. you know, every single stone that's part of that church was a stone that that one of the parishioners brought to the church. Right. Uh, today, you know, you got to go out to the diocese and get a loan, and you got to have proper contractors. I'm not saying that that's not just the world that we live in, right? I think people would shut down your your church building if you were doing it by hand like that. Um, although I kind of like to see that happen. But the the point is is that um, yeah, there's that personal investment. Um, it's not transactional, which is completely different than um, the way that most of us approach our parishes these days. Where, and I'm guilty of this too, you know, um, of sort of. It's not parish hopping because I'm actually l- moving all the time myself, right? Mm-hmm. You know, first New Jersey, then we move somewhere else, and then we move somewhere else. You know, finally we're in Kansas. You know, we've been in the parish that we've been in now up in uh, Baldwin City, Kansas, for uh, four years. And a pastor pulled me aside the other week and was talking about some things that I could do to, to help the parish more. And you know, and it was funny because he's like, look, you've been here four years. It's time for you to start. Like, <laughs> uh, and it was, look, I'm not like, I'm not just like set it and forget it about it, but there are certain, you know, practical matters that need attending in the parish. 
you know, I'm not talking about the, I mean, no, even, even the altar guild, right. Um, and the flower ladies and whoever right. else, uh, you, you know, the parish I was in before the Diddy center, big suburban parish, but people loved the place. And, and one thing that they did to show this was they, they, uh, formed a group called the gardening angels not guardian gardening angels and they did all the landscape work and it saved the parish and the and the mowing and over the years it saved the parish upward of a million dollars but they're able to kind of go the extra mile make things look nice and beautiful and and you see i think this is what chesterton's getting at is that florence is special because people love florence and they have for centuries and yeah yeah and that's um and that's that's just it. I mean, and it's not going to always stay the same. I think that's the important point is that um, he says rational optimism leads to stagnation. It is irrational optimism that leads to reform. Right. And he talks about it. And he says Pimlico, you know, if you just love Pimlico for being Pimlico um, in the bad sense, then it's never going to change because you always want that pothole in the street. You always want that dilapidated house there. Can we, can we read this? Cause it's yeah, really go ahead, funny. Go ahead. Um, so uh, he, he says, we may say there must be a primary primal loyalty to life. The only question is, shall it be natural or supernatural loyalty? If you should like to put it, so shall it be a reasonable or unreasonable loyalty? Now, the extraordinary thing is that the bad optimism, the whitewashing, the weak defense of everything comes in with the reasonable optimism. Rational optimism leads to stagnation. It is irrational optimism that leads to reform. Let me explain by using once more the, power, the parallel of patriotism. The man who is most likely to ruin the place he loves is exactly the man who loves it with a reason. The man who will improve the place is the man who loves it without reason. If a man loves some feature of Pimlico, which seems unlikely, he may find himself defending the feature against Pimlico itself. But... If he simply loves Pimlico itself, he may lay it waste and turn it into the New Jerusalem. Yeah, and we find that so often, right? You think of um, you know, tearing down that dilapidated portion of the, the parish or something like that to rebuild something new and better, and you find people, well, it's always been this way, mm-hmm. right? And they're not seeing the good of the parish. It's It goes back to the principle that you find even in antiquity of, what the Athenians discovered when they were invaded by the Persians, which is that Athens is not the place, it's the people. Um, and that's continued on, you know, and it's become sort of a, a trope. Uh, even the, the recent uh, Marvel movie, Thor Ragnarok, right? Asgard's not a place, it's a people, <laughs> right? But going back to what the Athenians did, it does actually bear witness because the, the Persians were coming, they knew that they had to defend themselves with their ships. They needed to move out of the city. And yet there was this older band of people. Um, and Athens looked nothing like what we think of Athens. Athens was like in the, the 480s, a uh, very country bumpkin Greek village city. Um, not sort of the, the beautiful uh, thing that we imagine. And look, there's all sorts of problems with the way that we imagine it because um, as a classicist, I have to inter- intervene and say, look, like a lot of these white uh, statues and everything were all painted different, <laughs> right. were different colors. And, right. and we've known this for a long time, but we've even constructed this idea of this perfect. Anyway, that's a whole other thing, but it really wasn't that much to look at. Um, there were a few wooden walls around the Acropolis and these old men refused to believe the Oracle 
and they stayed behind. So while the rest of the city was saved by, you know, realizing that the, the city was the people and that they could come back and they could make it bigger and better, which is what they did, uh, there were a few people who stayed behind, right? The sort of rational optimists mm -hmm. and they were burned with the, the remainders of the city. And years later, when Athens was rebuilt to the Parthenon that we know of today and the Erechtheion and all these glorious monuments, the Stoa, the, the Areopagus, everything, right? It became the beautiful uh, cradle of democracy. Well, that's because they were irrational optimists. They did the irrational optimist thing, which is to take everyone and leave the city and to, to trust that they could come back and found it as something better. That's a great example. Uh, that's, that's exactly what he's talking about here. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, just because I'm a parish priest, I'm going to piggyback with the parish example. You know, you, you mentioned parish hopping. I mean, very often you'll see people say, new pastor comes in, I don't like his preaching, I don't like the music that he's doing, I'm leaving. Well, you see, that's the rational optimist. Rather, I mean, I mean, I think it's really beautiful when you come to a parish, and this parish is people's homes, and this is their home. Mm -hmm. And and yeah, maybe they don't prefer and the music. you. Yeah, you as a pastor hold it in trust, right? Both, both for both for the bishop and for the people. Yeah, yeah, but it's their it's their home, uh, and it's been their family's home for generations. Sometimes, um, uh, and and um, they're not going to let one aspect that changes take them away from their home yeah yeah all right well we sort of went down that rabbit hole with that um i wanted to go back on some of the good things about the optimist currently though sure um and there's one good thing that i i think does bear pointing out which is that um just like fairy tales there's certain stories that are good for us and that are a good basis for a morality um, he talks about the, the very little to do with actually what Tristan is talking about with Penny Dreadfuls. But it's this sort of like swashbuckling tales of, of, um, of adventure, um, suspense, these sorts of things that were um, in production in the early 20th century, late 19th century. Um, if you're familiar with Michael Palin from Monty Python, he did a, a great little series, comedy series of like sort of paying tribute to them. Right. There's much that's laughable in them because it's always like easy heroes, easy villains. Right. The, the villains always the 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 guy with the, the hunchback and the, the wicked laugh. And uh, I mean, it's sort of the morality as stories that you get from Star Wars. Star Wars is very much in the penny dreadful uh, mode. Right. <laughs> How do you tell if it's a bad guy? Well, does he look like a walking skeleton or is he wearing the black costume? Or, you know? yeah, or the stormtroopers are all white. Yeah, stormtroopers are all yeah stormtroopers are all white because they're meant to look like the skeletons as the uh, oh never thought of that yeah see you learn something new every day and uh, anyway um, it's all sort of very cl crystal clear what's good what's bad it's not sort of the the more nuanced understanding that you get from someone like Zoltanitsyn right the line of good and evil runs through every human heart right we we get that but the penny dreadful also it does communicate something that is needed which is that. At, at certain times there is good and there is bad. It's like, um, you know, I know we're talking about orthodoxy, but a, a book that's written a little later is C.S. Lewis's Paralandra uh, in, the, in the space trilogy that yeah. he wrote. Yeah. And towards the middle end of that book, uh, the Ransom, the, the protagonist, is 
there and he's arguing with the devil about whether or not um, the devil should be allowed to tempt the, the first creatures of this new world. And eventually he realizes that there comes a point where, you know, talking is not going to do it with this evil, right? I need to exterminate this evil. Mm-hmm. Now, this evil is the devil himself, and that's a whole other, you know, thing. But he actually engages in physical combat with, with this creature. And it, 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 Penny Dreadfuls kind of teach that, that every once in a while, though, too, is that there are certain situations in life where there is going to be that decision of, of good versus evil, and you will be called upon to act on it. Not only are there certain situations, I mean, our whole life plays out in the midst of this struggle between good and evil right. that is very often kind of fading to the background that that is really going on for each of our souls, you could say. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, and he talks about these penny dreadfuls. I think that's right, that, you know, when he's talking about them, he says, uh, whatever the reason, it seemed and still seems to me that our attitude towards life can be better expressed in terms of a kind of military loyalty than in terms of criticism and approval, optimism, uh, pessimism and optimism. Right. So that's kind of gets at the, the two aspects then of the optimist, right? What's good about the optimist and what's bad about the optimist. But the thing that, that really intrigued me about the chapter was the pessimist, because it actually, you know, despite people and their impressions of Chesterton, it seems like uh, more of the sympathy, empathy, whatever he was wrestling with in his 20s was something to deal more with the pessimist than the optimist. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, we and we were talking about this beforehand. You talk about, we talk about him as this jolly individual, and he certainly was. And so maybe by temperament, he's uh, tended more to optimism. However, he very much saw that something was off, something was wrong. And, and I think this was the riddle that he was struggling with, that there was a reason for pessimism. Yeah. And... Yeah, it, it's, it goes into the problems of modernity and modern theory, both in literature and philosophy at the time. And it gets to the sort of big discussion point uh, in the, the latter half of the chapter, which is the suicide versus the martyr. Um, and I, I had brought up um, something else that I would, recently I had reread Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. Um, and in Mrs. Dalloway, there's a, a character, Septimus Smith, who commits suicide. And in the novel, which is written only a, a decade and a half after Chesterton wrote Orthodoxy, this character who commits suicide, who's kind of the Ibsenite. I mean, it does. Yeah, he's right. He tags it with, with Ibsen as sort of the only rational response to an irrational world is to say goodbye to it forever and to end yourself. Um you know, but it continues after Ibsen, and, and it's going to pick up with um, all these 1920s writers. You, you see it in sort of the dalliance with thoughts of suicide in Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. But, you know, again, coming back to what I recently read, which is um, Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah, there's held up as this sort of great um, no refusal to an irrational request from the world, which is to commit suicide. And, and Chesterton, I think, I wonder how much he himself struggled with that. Because what I find in here is, you know, what I had missed earlier, which are personal remarks of himself, which you can kind of discount as, um, if you're casually reading the book, 
you you think of it's just the authorial eye creating a logical chain of thought inside the chapter. Um, but I, I re- reading it this time, I feel like it's an autobiographical eye who is coming through these thoughts and recalling when he went through this process of thought. Um, I, I'm looking in particular at this one section. I don't know what else you have to bring in, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read my section and maybe you can jump in here. Yeah, yeah. I want I want to hear uh, your section first before I make any comments. So Chesterton says, then I remembered that it was actually the charge against Christianity that it combined these two things, which I was wildly trying trying to combine. So he's talking about optimism and pessimism, the desire for self-abnegation with the desire for loyalty to the world. So he's wrestling with this. Like he personally is wrestling with whether or not he should just end it all. And he says Christianity was accused at one and the same time of being too optimistic about the universe and of being too pessimistic about the world. The coincidence made me suddenly stand still. And I don't think he's talking about himself writing the chapter when he says the coincidence made me suddenly stand still. I think he's talking about some process of thought in his young adult life where he's coming to terms with this and he it's something is clicking it's some sort of revelatory moment um, that's bringing him closer to orthodoxy and that's the thing he promised throughout the book is that he's going to give us his own personal account i just lost the thread of his personal account because his personal account is not necessarily always with um, living people who are going to lead him into a bible study and then give him the gospel message and then ask him whether he not accepts jesus christ he, what he's talking about here is a man who lives with the democracy of the dead, a man who, who lives and breathes with books. It is a personal encounter, but it's a personal encounter that, that crosses centuries in time and space, um, which I find myself you know, in my own intellectual and spiritual journey sort of sympathetic to. But it's hard to discern how this is autobiographical because so much of it is happening inside your own head. Yeah. You know, I, I I think this is a really interesting read on it, um, and I don't know one way or the other to what degree he might have contemplated something as terrible as suicide, if at all. But I think I, he does hint throughout this chapter, um, you know, towards the end, he makes some comment about just feeling like things were off. And the optimist told him, hey, you're in the right place. Um, all is well with the world be happy but he couldn't and and it didn't feel right and then um christianity comes along with the doctrine of original sin and 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 tells him that he's not okay and he said my soul sang like a bird uh he he knows something's off and something's wrong and this this see that's why i feel like there's so many opportunities for the new evangelization if we could just realize that absolutely because you know the world right now a lot of what we're being told is that everything is okay and then we we have this deep discontent because you sense that it isn't okay right absolutely absolutely um sorry i i got you off your train of thought there no but i you know and i think you see him wrestling with this with the suicide and the martyr um you know i this is this is very much something that he was wrestling with intellectually um, if you're all right, I want to move on to another part of this dialogue. Yeah, um, that's great. So he says uh, about the same time. Uh, well, let me say this first. What he, what he talks about suicide um, a little before what I was about to read, he says not only is suicide a sin, it is the sin. It is the ultimate and absolute evil. 
the refusal to take an interest in existence, the refusal to take the oath of loyalty to life. The man who kills a man kills a man. The man who kills himself kills all men. As far as he is concerned, he wipes out the world. So he sees suicide as something, um, you know, objectively speaking, you know, for that person, the world ends, you know. Um, I've never thought of it that way. I think uh, from a pastoral experience, from a pastoral standpoint, my experience is mental illness plays a lot into that. Um, We don't need to jump into all that stuff. But as he's wrestling with this, he says, about the same time I read a solemn flippancy by some free thinker. He said that a suicide was only the same as a martyr. The open fallacy of this helped to clear the question. Obviously, a suicide is the opposite of a martyr. A martyr is a man who cares so much for something outside him that he forgets his own personal life. A suicide is a man who cares so little for anything outside him that he wants to see the last of anything. And it's here that he's struck by Christianity, right? Um, That Christianity had shown this weird harshness to the suicide and this wild encouragement to the martyr. And uh, he goes on to say that the Christian feeling was furiously for one and furiously against the other. The two things that looked so much alike were at the opposite ends of heaven and hell. One man flung away his life. He was so good that his dry bones could heal cities and pestilence. Another man flung away his life. He was so bad that his bones would pollute his brethren's. I am not saying this fierceness was right, but why was it so fierce? Here it was that I first found that my wandering feet were in some beaten track. Christianity had also felt this opposition of the martyr to the suicide. Had it perhaps felt it for the same reason? Had Christianity felt what I felt but could not and cannot express, this need for a first loyalty to things and then a ruinous reform of things? Yeah. And and I I know we're trying to stick away from some current events, but um, I'm not really talking about current events right now. I'm talking about um, popular philosophy that's going on right now. And there's kind of a rediscovery of stoicism that's uh, kind of prevalent in sort of um, bro culture uh, in in the tech world and in other areas. And I think uh, Chesterton is kind of needed here in his takedown of Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism. While the Stoics were the ones in the, the early days of the church who went from Stoicism to Christianity, there's kind of a weird trend these days of Christians turning back to Stoicism that I find kind of a little disturbing because... Stoicism, it, it lacks something. It's not a solution to Christianity, right? Stoicism was more open to Christianity than, say, Epicureanism. Right. But that doesn't mean that in the 21st century we have to go to Stoicism to bolster Christianity. Um, and I, I like this section. I'm going to indulge myself. We only have a few minutes here, but uh, I'm going to look at this section where he talks about Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. He says, notice that Marcus Aurelius, which for those of us uh, who aren't familiar with Roman history, uh, maybe you've seen the movie Gladiator. Marcus Aurelius is the uh, the last of the five good, so-called five good emperors. That's a debatable point. Um, we <laughs> come to that later. But um, he's also a Stoic philosopher, and uh, his meditations have become more popular lately, um, especially in the for those of us, I, I work in digital humanities, and so I know that in the tech industry, at least, um, Stoicism, especially Marcus Aurelius, has become really popular. Um, And so I want to read this. So notice that Marcus Aurelius insists, as such introspective moralists always do, upon small things done or undone. It is because he has not hate or love enough to make a moral revolution. He gets up early in the morning, 
just as our own aristocrats living the simple life get up early in the morning, because such altruism is much easier than stopping the games of the amphitheater or giving the English people back their land. Marcus Aurelius is the most intolerable of human types. He is an unselfish egoist. An unselfish egoist is a man who has pride without the excuse of passion. Um, I'm, I'm not going to read much longer, but the whole section is worth reading. And uh, I hate to do it because Joe's not here with us, but I was editing last week's episode as we record. I mean, we record mm-hmm. these, um, you know, we're recording usually the day of or the day after we've released last week's mm-hmm. podcast. Um, but Joe had brought up Jordan Peterson. Oh, and I think this is my answer to, you know, uh, pot, you're holding uh, the word on fire uh, version of orthodoxy. <laughs> but I think this is my um, sort of, you know, I'll gladly debate them, uh, Brandon Vaught or, or Bishop Barron on this whole sort of dalliance with the philosophy of Jordan Peterson is that not only is it wrong from the Jungian psychological perspective, it's wrong on a philosophical perspective. Because, you know, if, you, if you've read Jordan Peterson's book, uh, like I did, you you see that what Jordan Peterson's doing is not offering some sort of virile Christianity. What he's offering is pagan stoicism. Right, right. And I find it dangerous, just as Chesterton would find it dangerous, because it doesn't actually offer you the kind of love or the kind of hate that is the revolutionary love of hate of Christianity, uh, a, a hatred of sin, a, a love right. of the good. But instead, it offers you make your room, get up on time, do some push-ups, eat your salad, whatever it is. Um, be be the the lobster, uh, as as right, he, right, right as he right. puts it, right. Which is this mechanistic understanding of the human person, which is reductivist and stoic in nature. Which anyway, sorry, I know this is kind of me going off on it. Um, no, but but you're right. Chesterton would criticize. Um, Jordan Peterson in that regard, uh, I think that's safe to say. You know, he says here that um, we want a fiercer delight and a fiercer discontent, right? A little bit uh, before where we just read, you know, he says that we need to be at once not only a pessimist and an optimist, but a fanatical pessimist and a fanatical optimist. That we need to have these strong loves and these strong hates for true evil. You know what I was reminded of, uh, if I can go off on a short tangent? Yeah, I, sure. R.R. Reno, uh, Rusty Reno. Yeah, yeah. He, he is the editor of First Things. He wrote a book called Return of the Strong Gods. And what he's talking about there by strong gods is ultimately strong loves. Um, he, love of nation, love of, of God. Um, and, uh, you know, there was this post-war consensus which, which downplayed the strong loves. And we're seeing a resurgence of those. Um, Chesterton isn't, you know, he's not quite calling for, I think he's calling for something stronger than, than, uh, love of nation, good though that can be. You know, I think what he's finding in Christianity is an answer to this riddle of, of a life that's better than the quiet despair of stoicism or the willful ignorance of the blind optimist, you know, yeah. this, this, when he discovers the truth of what's wrong with the world, when he discovers that this riddle is a well-worn path that Christianity's trod before. Um, he's joyful because he doesn't. Life doesn't just present these two options, right? Which were both unsatisfactory to him. Yeah, and I, yeah, I feel like at this point, and he hasn't really named it again. But I'm my obsession this this time. If you've been you know paying attention in the last few chapters, is that I'm I'm reading it this time as sort of an autobiographical 
account of him coming to the faith. But I feel like this chapter is him really coming into Christianity at this point. I would agree. That, I would agree. That at this, I, th- I think it's safe to say that at the end of this chapter, he sort of traced a path for himself where Christian, it's not, you know, it's not just that Christianity is kind of aligning with him. At this point, once he's done with Ethics of Elfland, which is kind of a pagan reason in some ways. Sure. Uh, optimism, ima- or sorry, not optimism, uh, imagination, wonder, the sort of groundwork of understanding of what the world is. This chapter, I think, is, okay, well, Christianity is the only way where I'm going to thread this needle mm-hmm. between these two things. Yeah. And I think it's safe to say that while he doesn't explicitly lay it out, I think it, it, if you follow the thread of his argument, by the end of the chapter, Christianity is where he's landed. And that's why you're going to find in the, the next chapter, which we're going into next week, is uh, titled The Paradoxes of Christianity, which is about, okay, well, now that I'm in here, right, I've temporarily joined this camp because it's the only solution to this problem. And now what are, what are the attendant uh, things that I find once I'm in this uh, refuge, right? As you've, you, you've been shipwrecked and this, this other boat comes alongside you, you've jumped inside this other boat. Now it's time to take inventory and see, you know, how you can sk- sail this skiff and if there are any food supplies or whatever else is going on. Does that sound like a fair assessment of where... I- Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think ethics of Elfland, there might be a recognition. Right. That, the, the conditional joy element. Right? Yes. The, the, yeah. That some things require sacrifice. Right. Which, which is a prelude to Christianity, but it's right. not. No, it's not. It's not. And, and I mean, the way he describes discovering this beaten path of Christianity, and he goes on with the, with the whole machine analogy. Yeah. Like there's a machine with a hole in it and Christi- the Christian dogma of, of the transcendence of God. That God and creation are not one, but but separate, like a poet and his poem, or a mother and her child. Uh, and he put that dogma in the whole. The whole machine comes to life. Yeah, it's it's as if he's that machine, and that the dogma once he accepts it, all these lights start coming on, and he moves into this camp, so to speak. Great. Well, this is the reason why I'm looking forward to next week because we're finally we're finally getting into the the meat and potatoes of Christianity with Chesterton. So thank you, Father. Yeah, and uh, thank you for listening. And, and really, I am looking forward to the next chapter as well. You know, Chesterton is the king of paradox, chapter called Paradoxes of Christianity. You know it's going to be good. So look forward to reading and talking about it. Let's end with a brief prayer here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, never shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, Son Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to Emporia State Catholics, a podcast of the Diddy Catholic Campus Center, serving the students, faculty, and staff of Emporia State University since 1990. To learn more about the Diddy Center, please visit us at www.diddycenter.org. And if you have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a review, or better still, share with your friends. God bless.